Ghosts or zombies? What? You're listening to the Love Thy Neighbor podcast, your home for discussion and analysis of the theology, ethics, and political philosophy of Ryan Rothbeam. Welcome back to another episode of the Love Thy Neighbor podcast. We're still the only ones doing it. Thanks for tuning in again, dear listener. I want to say this real quick from the beginning. If you've been listening for a while now and you're enjoying it, please, please, please hit subscribe, rate us, write us a good review. That kind of stuff just uh, really helps the show. I'm Cliff Bailey and I'm joined as usual with co-host Zach Narrison. If you didn't listen last week, Aaron does have this week off again, as he did last week. He's preparing for PhD interviews and reading a whole bunch of stuff for his uh, potential advisor right now. Uh, So special thanks to Matt Anderson, who stepped in last week in Aaron's absence. And uh, this week we have another very special guest filling in. This fellow needs no introduction. He is standing all alone in the very exclusive three-timers club. The only friend of the pod who has appeared thrice in these 42 episodes we've published, Dr. Jeremy Sabella, welcome back. Thank you. Thank you. Is there like some sort of jacket that I get for like the yeah. third episode? Yeah. Like a robe, like a smoking there jacket maybe? <laughs> <clears throat> we, would, we would send people a mug, but nobody will give us their address. So <laughs> Now, uh, Jeremy's return comes with very fortuitous timing. Uh, Zach, you want to explain why you wanted Jeremy back for this particular <laughs> episode? Well, uh, a number of years ago, um, I emailed Jeremy after reading his book out of the blue, and I was doing a a book group where we were going through his book, and we kind of I just sh- shot it out there. It sounds like a shot in the dark to see, hey, maybe this maybe this guy will join our book study over Zoom. It was right in the middle of the pandemic, and um, Jeremy was very gracious. Uh, well, he I messaged him on Facebook at first, and so you know he didn't he did he doesn't get on Facebook much, so he didn't get back to us. But about like six months later, he did finally get on Facebook and uh, he he messaged me back and we connected. And then we he talked to us about uh, he did. He didn't end up coming on and talked to us about the uh, irony of American history, I believe. And at the end, we asked him, like, hey, is there any other books, you know, that you would recommend that we read of Niebuhr? And he kind of caught me off guard because I wasn't expecting him to say a book that I hadn't even heard of, which was Beyond Tragedy. Um and it was, you know, and then, you know, kind of every time we followed up on that, he's kind of brought it back to, hey, you should do Beyond Tragedy. So, um, and this is the final chapter of Beyond Tragedy. We've gone all the way through. So, I, it, no, none more fitting than to have Jeremy on. So, very appropriate. And we should also say Jeremy um, has kind of a, a writing style himself that kind of mirrors Niebuhr a little bit of kind of the sermonic essay type uh, th- that mirrors this book too. So I'm, I'm assuming that's kind of where you've gathered some of your influence, Jeremy. Yeah. Well, you know, it's hard. So I wrote my dissertation on Niebuhr and then went on to write an American conscience. Um, so I was basically immersed in Niebuhr's thought world for, you know, a good half decade. And it's, it's, it's hard to immerse yourself that deeply in someone's thought without picking up some of their quirks. And, um, you know, the, the sermonic essay, I, I think it is, um, in many ways, Niebuhr at his most compelling, uh, because these are observations that his own family members would make where they would say, you know, you, you really want Reinhold at his best. Yeah. He's a good writer. You have to hear him in the pulpit. 
and I, you know, you, with, with these essays, you, you kind of get a sense of somebody because he was notorious. Students would talk about him showing up to class with a suitcase because he was going to hop on a train right after class to go deliver a sermon at some university chapel. He's like on this university chapel circuit. And so I think that's just the way his mind worked, right? He, he just wrote down skeleton notes, used that to just like launch into his sermons. And you can imagine him lecturing on a particular topic in ethics at Union and then hopping on a train and trying to tease out, okay, how do I make this land um, in a chapel setting, in a religious setting, right? Similar concepts. So he works some of that out, jots it down. And then you can imagine him delivering a similar version of that sermon, you know, later that same week, right? Tweaking it a little bit, trying to figure out what works and what doesn't. So what you end up with in these sermonic essays is stuff that it's material that Niebuhr's worked through who knows how many times. It wouldn't surprise me if he's delivered sermons on these topics, um, you know, 15, 20 times. Yeah. And this is the polished version. This is when he's got it kind of all nailed down and you get some of that flavor of oral tradition like you'll notice in um some of these sermons like he's repeating phrases the way that a good orator does right when your audience is hearing something you need to keep them hooked in that repetition makes its way into the sermonic essay so it's just i think it captures niebuhr's rhetoric in a way that um none of his other writings do yeah. And uh, there was something I remember you, I think it was you saying this a while back last time we had you on that um, the parable of the wheat and the weeds was the one that he was always kind of returning back to and reframing like sermons around that. Yeah, it's just something I, I you know, that really jumped out at me from being in the Niebuhr papers is the number of drafts of sermons, uh, the wheat and the weeds, the wheat and the tares, you know, Niebuhr loved his archaic yep terms yeah yeah and so it was always you know wheat and tares at the top of of these sermons so it's it's variations on that theme just over and over and over again you got like these you know handwritten notes in pencil where he's like working things out um over and over and over again with that one story (laughs) that's amazing yeah wow um good Uh, so are are you working on anything right now jeremy yeah so i have a a book manuscript in under review at the moment um and the working title for that it's so it's it's riffing a little bit off my dissertation the title is but the book is something quite different from the dissertation um it's called the politics of original sin rethinking the world the cold war made oh my gosh so this is like so my dream book okay this this sounds amazing okay well and here's where you know it's it's one of these things where, where Niebuhr is a part of it, but, you know, Niebuhr features prominently in one chapter. Then I talk about Niebuhr's influence on political and theological realism. Uh, but beyond that, it's not really a book about Niebuhr. It's, it's really a book about um, the kind of how Manichaeanism became pervasive during the Cold War in a way that's not wow. true in other eras of American history and how we haven't really escaped those Manichaean tendencies. We're still enthrall to Manichaean thinking hmm. across the board, right? I, I think just if, if you came of age during the Cold War, your mind was formed in the Cold War, your sens- sensibilities about the way the world works were formed in the Cold War, uh, it became second nature for us to think in terms of these stark moral binaries, right? Where we right. know who where good is, we know where evil is, and we know how to sort people into those camps. We're still doing that. We're yeah. still stuck there. And I think... Niebuhr's version of realism actually kind of 
Um, it was the road not traveled during the Cold War. He actually laid groundwork for how to think of this Cold War conflict, a very real conflict with immense mm -hmm. stakes um, in terms that avoided Manichaean oversimplification. He, he does it here in this chapter. <laughs> he absolutely does it in this chapter. He does it in The Children of Light and The Children of Darkness. The title sounds Manichaean, but then yeah. the whole book deconstructs that Manichaean yeah. binary and, and pushes us to think in more nuanced terms about, you know, where we're all fallen, right? So even if we're on the side of right, we have to keep our own fallenness in mind. And the person who's on the side of wrong is always in every, you know, is always redeemable. Mm -hmm. That never goes away. And we can't forget that. Yeah. Right. They have enough good in them to be redeemed. Yeah. And so how do we think about a conflict like the Cold War in terms that capture that tension? And, and how do we capture that that same spirit and that that same approach to conflict today um, mm -hmm. where we honor the stakes? Right. I have very strong feelings, really strong opinions of, are on where, you know, the lines of good and evil lie today. But how do I articulate those stakes and still see the human, the humanity of the person on the other side? Right. Right. And try to persuade them. Right. Try to try to, you know, always keep in mind that, that there's there's the possibility for redemption is always there. So that's in very broad strokes. That's what the book's about. Well, it you seems know, like we're not completely, like you said, we're not free from that either. This always seems like it's kind of a um, a parasitic heresy that's always been a like a part of Christianity, sometimes more dominant, sometimes less dominant. But uh, it seems like that Manichaeist impulse has always been there. And yeah, I mean, and, and it seems like at least we had Niebuhr then. But who do we have today? Who's pushing that message of of that complex uh, layered view of sin out today. Uh, yeah, that's something that we that we certainly need. That, now, there was a, a another book. It was in that time frame. And I believe that it was on Niebuhr. It was on sin. Niebuhr, Billy Graham, and I think there was one other theologian, maybe Tillich. I don't know. Do you know what book I'm talking about? Original Sin and Everyday Protestants. That's it. Yes. That? So that was by Andrew Finstwin. Oh, that's right. Okay. Yeah. And, and uh, Finstwin and I worked quite closely together on the documentary. You know, he was, he helped produce that documentary. So yeah, so he, he, that book, I think is great at helping to tease out these other currents. And that that's part of the inspire, you know, that's part of the deep inspiration for this project is realizing there there was this path not taken. There were people who even you know in at the height of the cold war we're thinking about this in hmm. these 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 more nuanced terms that i think would get us out of this mindset of you know it's the godly west versus godless communists and right. we're headed for armageddon right hmm. right because that's when the problem really gets thick is when you combine the like manichaean light versus dark with an apocalyptic tendency yeah and those things converged in the cold war and we my, my basic thesis is we never escaped that Right. Mm -hmm. So we're now in a world where uh, Vladimir Putin can get a whole bunch of Americans to side with him because he flipped the binary. He's saying right. now that Russia is defending traditional family values and defending God. And it's the secular West that's become godless. Yeah. Mm. And a bunch of people followed him with that flip of the binary. Right. Mm. Former yeah. KGB agent. Yeah. Running Russia now has a whole bunch of the religious right in his corner simply because he flipped the Cold War binary in its head and they went with it. 
It's interesting how last week we were discussing the power of Jesus telling Pilate that he comes bearing truth. The power of this is that truth somehow is beyond the leader. Um, but that, but it's interesting how that statement of truth can even become perverted in this by by putting truth not you're still using truth over and against a leader, but it's just the other leader that they are uh, that they are the failures and the truth is over here and evil's over there, and we still find a way of of kind of using truth quote unquote uh, for corrupted purposes. That's absolutely right. Um, there there's we are all capable of corrupting truth. And, you know, if I want to get philosophical, more technical about the flip, I'm trying to get people to think about it's, we need to stop thinking of evil and ontological terms, hmm. right? Where evil, you know, some things are inherently good and other things are inherently evil. Hmm. Uh, because if, if a good and all powerful God created the world, everything was good. Hmm. Right. Uh, we need to think of good and evil in relational terms. It's a distortion of right relations. Right. Um, and that flip can get us out of some of these Manichaean issues. But, you know, I, I presented on this to my, my colleagues at Dartmouth. There's, you know, kind of a faculty colloquium and I got to present on it. And one of the points they really pushed me on, and I, I think correctly, is to think about these Manichaean tendencies as in, as in many ways indigenous to Christianity. Yes, there is a movement called Manichaeanism mm -hmm. that existed in, in the third and the fourth century. Mm -hmm. um, but these stark Manichaean binaries Christianity has always wrestled with them for, for all sorts of reasons. And it's, uh, we kind of need to be honest about the fact that it has these very, very deep roots in, in Christian thought. And if we're going to call it heresy, right, we're going to have to own just how much of this heresy has seeped into Christianity. Interesting. I, your um, language of sin as a distortion of goodness is interesting. I know that, so Aaron's reading a lot of the um, radical orthodoxy types, and they like to say privation of the good. Now, is there is there a distinction there? Am I splitting hairs? Is there a, is there a difference between privation and distortion? So, privation of good is a way of talking about uh, sin in an ontological register. That's still and not you don't even like that. Okay, right? interesting. Yeah. So it's it's not. It's basically saying there's no there's no like inherent something that's inherently evil that has mm -hmm. substance that doesn't exist, right? It, w w what becomes evil it, it becomes that because good has been stripped from it in some way, right? But there's no there there, right? That's very Augustinian. That's kind of his answer to to the Manichaean approach. Um, but I think you know I there are certain thinkers I you know I think of Rowan Williams for instance is somebody who's really deft at making this pivot from talking about sin as privation of the good to sin as a malfunction of relations. Good. Right? And I, you know, I think that's actually Rowan Williams's own language. That's good. Um, and so, and, and that, you know, Augustine also is, is somebody who is clear on that. It's like when we start misordering our loves, mm. right. Where we, you know, we, we love the right things, but in the wrong way. Mm -hmm. And that's when, when sin enters. Yeah. Right. You have to figure out how to, you know, how do we love the right things in the right way? Um, that's what the whole moral life is about. Well, we're excited. Like whenever you finish that, um, dang, dude, we, we got to get you a new smoking jacket because we're going <laughs> to we're going to bring you on for a fourth time or we're just going to change the patch on it, I guess. Mm. Uh, <laughs> OK, so um, to what Zach was talking about, we really wanted Jeremy on here for the final one, because and he's told me this as well, like. 
he's toured both of us uh, many times. You got to get through uh, Beyond Tragedy. Um, and uh, and I had, but uh, but I think uh, go, going through it when you're, you know, writing uh, your thesis and going through it through, uh, uh, you know, with great uh, dialogue partners is a very different thing. And um, and this has been a really eye opening experience for me. And we're glad that you come back on here for the end of it to get to get your thoughts on this. Um, so, yeah, for our listeners today, we we close the book on this wonderful collection of sermonic essays. And we have no idea where we're going next uh, after this one. Uh, oh, wait, we do. We're uh, interviewing Heel and Gaston next week. But like what book we're going to be covering next, we're not sure yet. We'll have to have that conversation. Actually, we do know. Zach, what is it? Uh, Iron American, American History. history. Yeah. We're American. Having, uh, in, in Into June, we're having uh, Andrew Bezovich on and he's going to help us kick off the Irony of American History. Just in time for the 4th of July, right? Yep. That's when we're going to publish it, I think. Yeah, well, and, and Basevich is such a compelling person on irony of American history. I, I you know, I heard him uh, when when he interviewed for the documentary, and uh, so that that's going to be a fantastic conversation. And Wait. if you if you want a list of questions to ask Basevich, I can I can help craft those. Yes. Awesome, excellent. So today we're closing out the final chapter. Uh, the chapter is called "The Fulfillment of Life." Um, and remember, Niebuhr starts every chapter of this book off with uh, a scripture that he will be meditating on um, through that chapter. But this week, he doesn't use a scripture. He actually closes on the final uh, line from the Apostles' Creed. Now, Aaron normally does this part, but Jeremy, would you like to do the honors of reading this? Yeah, so here's the um, the quote from the Creed that, Niebuhr's open this, that Niebuhr opens this with. I believe in the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Short, sweet. Forgiveness of sins, resurrection, and life everlasting. Now, here are the official Love Thy Neighbor section titles. <laughs> uh, again, I came up with this, so it's this isn't Niebuhr, but he does section this off into one, two, three, four, five, five parts. Three sections, an intro, and I'm calling it an outro. So the intro... The introduction I have named Resurrection or Immortal Soul. It's an interesting discussion there. Section one, the human spirit, source of human goodness or source of human sin. Section two, individual soul or collective resurrection. Section three, fulfillment of life in an undifferentiated universal or in the new body. And the outro I just put down, uh, the fulfillment of life is now the uneasiness of conscience. And there's some discussion before we started recording about whether this is kind of a cap, this last one, because he doesn't even give it a section number. Uh, it's just the closing of the book. So it might be a cap of the book. It might also be a, a cap to just this chapter. So it's a little bit ambiguous on that. So first up, introduction, resurrection or immortal soul. Let's sort of, how does Niebuhr remember this closing statement of the Apostles' Creed on forgiveness of sins, but resurrection uh, and eternal life? How does, like, looking back on his days in seminary, how does he, I guess, recall this uh, this creed? Uh, obviously, some, some angst. They obviously, uh, they sat around and uh, it sounds like they sat around and did a lot of uh complaining about it it's a little too supernatural maybe in their in their estimation 
I mean, that seems that seems to be the perspective. I'm trying to get my head around that time. He has an issue with whether or not it's literally true about the resurrection. This might be a little bit tangential, but I find his skepticism about the resurrection interesting because he seems to suggest that he believes in an afterlife, or at least he says an immortal soul is more believable. I'm curious, this might be a bit personal, but do you guys think it's harder to believe in resurrection than perhaps the alternative that we have, we all have these immortal souls floating in us or something that you know spring from our dead bodies when we pass well, what do you guys think what's what's harder to believe well it's kind of funny though because you know he he starts off with that he says obviously at the beginning he says the idea of the resurrection of the body can of course not be literally true but then he goes on and says the ultimate fulfillment of life is is expressed in the conception of the resurrection and so you know he's he's trying to kind of say both and here you know what i mean it's like this like tension uh, but I think he makes the case, I mean, just even in this first thing, like that there's a there's a case to be made for keeping these two things together, not falling into dualism, not falling into naturalism, but to recognize that you kind of have to hold these two things together. Um, and I think that's actually pretty orthodox. You know what I mean? Um, oh, yeah, I, I totally agree. But what do you like? What do you find easier to believe, Zach, that, that oh, we have res- souls in us or resurrection? Re- like resurrection. from a, from your like Western scientific resurrection. view. Really? Okay. Yeah. I, How about I, immortal you, soul is most difficult. Oh yeah. I mean, that's the thing. It's, it's, um, I guess my attitude with a lot of this stuff is like, listen, if you believe that God became human, <laughs> right. Like what, what, what can't you believe? Like, is it really that much of a leap to believe in something like the resurrection of the body? And so for me, I, I found this most hopeful to think and about in tandem with his as deceivers yet true sermon where he talks about the way that basically biblical language is straining us beyond what, where reason can take us. Yeah. Right. So when he says it's, you know, it's not literally true um, for me, the passage that helps us interpret that is he, you know, goes on on, on page 291 to say reason can only deal with the stuff of experience. Mm, yeah. Right. He's, he's a true pragmatist in that way where he really does believe like our reason is based off of, you know, the fact that we have bodies and, interact with the world we literally have no experience of an incorruptible body yeah so that's what he that's what i take him to be saying when he's saying it's not literally true we have zero framework for understanding what an incorruptible body would even be like and And so i I, you know i read him as saying like yeah it's an article of faith the resurrection of the body we have no idea what that will look like uh, but we have to affirm it anyway and to be fair the the gospel writers are a little bit weird it's almost like they know something's happened. What is this thing? Like John portrays Jesus as walking through a locked door. Or is that is that John? Yeah, I think that's John. Uh, and yet in the next chapter, he's eating, you know, fish. Is is this like, is this, you know, it seems like they're all struggling to get their minds around what what the resurrection looks like. Well, um, there's an ambiguity there. Yeah. And, and I remember reading uh, during the pandemic, you know, no, it's the great pandemic. Um, I remember reading something by N.T. Wright, and he just really affirmed and really like focused in on it to saying, you know, the Christian hope is the hope of resurrection, not the immortal soul. Like, mm-hmm. like he really emphasized that. And I remember thinking to myself, man, oh, that's kind of a relief. You know what I mean? Like, I just there's something about that that I'm like, yeah, that is it's, it was just a good reminder. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think I think what Jeremy said is really important, though, too. Um, I think it's really important to recognize that. He's using language that's kind of uh, 
very technical almost it feels like you know what i mean like like i i know i i know uh, having read him quite a bit now at this point that when he when he says something like it is not literally true he he's he's getting at something like like a like a subtlety like that that idea that you know we in existence we're going to have a real difficulty uh, conceptualizing this in any real way he's kind of, as a pragmatist he's kind of like i speak where the the science speaks and or where experience speaks and i can speak no further but except for in the symbolic realm yeah that can that can actually like what jeremy mentioned in the deceivers yet true which the these symbols will actually help us wrestle with realities more clearly than what our experience can and i think he he does highlight also you know he says this here the this human situation is a paradoxical one and i think that that is something that we try to that that is something we try to resolve all the time is that that there is something paradoxical to human experience and in reading that i was a little bit convicted because i think i you know i oftentimes probably lean towards materialism before i lean towards or naturalism before i lean towards dualism that's for sure but um amen i would say that as well and that, yeah, that's that, kind that's of what i was my, getting at with the question of yeah, yeah what's that's, easier that's my that's my proclivity but then i started thinking about it I was like you know existence is pretty paradoxical you know what i mean like here i am you know operating on myself but i matter and you know it's like this there's kind of this almost like oh yeah you know but it's that like might I cause heard, some people to run to like consciousness as you well, but but i i remember talking to i mean not talking to man, i wish i was talking to but i remember hearing two physicists talk and um, one physicist was talking about determinism and he's like, Hey, this is determinism, blah, blah, blah. And then the other physicist was like, yeah, I can't believe that. Even though they're, they're both like <laughs> premier physicists. And he's like, it's just common sense. It's my experience. I have free will. <laughs> and it was like, you know what I mean? Like it was like, so he, but I think he was actually acknowledging how, what we actually experience in life as opposed to, but I, I just thought that was kind of funny here. Here are two guys, that, you know, the height of their powers in understanding the physical world. And they can't even, you know, they're still, one it's, of them is trying to resolve it. One of them's like, dude, I can't resolve this. It's interesting you bring that up because he he brings in freedom as a part of the unified self and that you don't necessarily get that uh, in, in the other perspectives. Um, yeah, good. We'll get to that here in a second. I, speaking personally, I have a hard time with the soul thing. I do like and it might be and it's like knee, it's like neighbor button reverse. I think my sci, like scientific um, prejudices is more inclined to disbelieve that we have some kind of uh immaterial part of us and if god made everything material why would why would there be this one weird thing that is immaterial and immortal and undetectable that just seems weird to me uh seems like it's it's far more in keeping with everything else to have everything kind of be material and he simply raises that thing and and reanimates it i guess i don't know Maybe that's just me, but, and, but bringing it back. So Niebuhr does say that he finds the soul easier to believe just because that Greek influenced prejudice, but ultimately says, and I quote him here, it is no more conceivable. And I think this is, this is where it all comes down to. He says, it is no more conceivable that the soul should exist without the body than the mortal body should be made immortal. They're both equal. This is like what Jeremy is saying. They're both equally hard to believe. If you can believe God can become man, why stop there? Like, why discount either one of them? And he goes on to say, neither, uh, neither nothing is conceivable because reason can deal only with the stuff of experience. And we have no experience of either a discarnate soul or an immortal body. I'm on board with that. Though, 
given our recent experiences in this old church, Aaron and I might disagree with that a little bit. <laughs> we, I'll just, I, I think we have ghosts. Um, anyway, so he uh, concludes the introduction saying, and this is what Zach was uh, hit on right before. He concludes the introduction saying that uh, one cannot do justice to the fulfillment of life going to either a naturalistic or a dualistic extreme, which is interesting. I want to get your guys' thoughts on this. He's setting up a dialectic, a, kind of a dialectic between naturalism and dualism. Intuition might tell us there is a dialectic between naturalism and rationalism, you know, that he might try to weave. But no, he's he's going to be arguing the proper dialectic for fulfillment of life as found in the tension between dualism and naturalism. What are you guys' thoughts on that? Well, no, I, you know, it's a good point, right? Where it isn't the kind of the neatest philosophical pairing. And it like comes back to Niebuhr's reliance on, on paradox, where he's putting things together that don't seem to quite fit. But his issue with, with naturalism is that it basically like, it strips your purchase of anything that gives life ultimate meaning, right? It's, you know, humans find meaning precisely because there is something above and beyond history. Um, and you take that out of the equation, the, the human ability to find fulfillment is lost as well. And this is a critique that comes, you know, he comes to repeatedly here where he says, you know, in the naturalistic world, right? Like, you know, he, he basically talks about Marxist utopia as the kingdom of God minus resurrection, right? right? It's like, you know, the kingdom of God conceives in purely naturalistic terms, right? It's something that we build here on earth. And what I take to be his point there is, you know, let's say you achieve the perfect society, people will still be dissatisfied mm -hmm. because there's something in the human spirit that transcends history, that transcends the material world. And so the language of dualism helps capture that element of the human, right? That the part of us that transcends the material. Um, but he, he insists, he repeats it multiple times, soul and body are one. Those things are united right we, we we you can't talk about a disembodied soul dualism helps capture this realm of meaning beyond above and beyond history above and beyond physical experience um but it it does violence to the oneness of of soul and body yeah so a non-starter for niebuhr is straight rationalism or straight idealism those are you can't have one pole uh, of kind of the dialectic being that because there is no individual whatsoever. And it defies something that we already know what he would call, obviously, you know, uh, that we are children of nature. Uh, you can't get rid of that. There is maybe a better argument that we are uh, animals or that we are high-functioning, you know, rational animals, as Aristotle would say. Uh, there's a better argument there. Um, but the, comp like, mysticism, rationalism, they're all doing the same thing. He gets into this a little bit later, but they're all doing the same thing of creating, of completely flattening the self, getting rid of all the things that we know, you know, about our physical bodies and nature. Um, so that's kind of a non-starter. So he, he pits it really dualism might be a candidate because it's you know it at least pays tribute to both the the physical self and the rational or higher self you know 
and uh, and the, another possibility is naturalism that you know that the rational self is just something that was born out of or the the higher self was just born out of of nature yeah so yeah so um section one is i'm calling the spirit a uh, source of human goodness or source of human sin i thought this was a fascinating chapter what what did you guys take from this oh i mean there's, there's quite a bit here i mean it, it's a little bit hard for me to unpack exactly what his point is um uh you know what i mean like that's that's kind of my i, I came away from this kind of hoping to discuss that with you guys because i was a little <laughs> um a little lost honestly well he starts um, off I know oh, there's a ten- well, as you say, I know there's a tension between um like like you know, he has this line in here where he says, the Hebrews conceived the soul significantly as residing in the blood. And so like I recognize that part of what's going on here is he's trying to make a close tie between uh the soul and the body and keep this uh well, I forgot that there's a name for it. Anyways, yeah. The union of body and soul. There's a name for that. Um <clears throat> and so I recognize that. But he's trying to make this this point about the heart, I believe, and I'm not sure that I totally track what he's trying to uh, articulate or what he's trying to push back against. I guess I don't understand necessarily the foe that he's up against here. So, I, like, I think that um, we could take this in steps. First of all, he wants to point out the elephant in the room, which I'm sure that Jeremy would, you know, uh, is is really keyed in on right now, and that is dualism in Christianity. He's here's a quote here. He says the Christianity has been forced to combat and at times capitulated to the notion that the significance of history lies in the banishment of the good uh, of the good soul in an evil body and in the gradual emancipation of the soul from the body so this is like that the dualism we, we've all like i think that even among many orthodox christians most maybe the view is the, the soul is good the body bad when we die, we find fulfillment in leaving the body and and going and finding our fulfillment at home with God. Augustine even uses this kind of home language, you know, when we die and go to the afterlife. Uh, so, yeah, the, he, he's, he basically wants to tackle this first, is that there's this inclination that we have to treat the soul as higher than the body. Okay, so that's, that's fundamentally what he's pushing back against in this first section? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. See, yeah, I was trying to identify, you know, when I'm, when I'm reading Niebuhr, I'm always trying to identify like, who's he after here? And I was having trouble narrowing down, okay, what's the group that he's after or what's the ideology that it's after or, and I was, I was, I was kind of picking up on it, right? There's this desire to separate, but then there's also the active, like you're saying, there's this, these individuals who are uh, like actively doing this, they're elevating the soul. They're, they're, they're um, highlighting it as better and greater. They're subordinating Um, the body to the soul. It's almost like a, it's almost like a Gnosticism. Yes, that's right. Yeah, so that's that's for me that, you know, conceptually it helps me frame, okay, like he's after kind of the Gnostic idea. You know what I mean? At least that's what it seems like from what you're saying. Well, yeah, and I, you know, I do see him making this pivot from the ontological ontological to the relational, right? Because when he's using the language of rash, you know, of, of naturalist versus dualist, these are like very technical and philosophical terms. But what he's trying to get at I, at least as I read it, is something more existential, right? What's it like to be this, you know, spirit animal hybrid where mm-hmm. the two are intimately connected, right? We we they're, they're, we know they're distinct things, right? Like we 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 have this consciousness that's not quite the body, but it's still very much connected to the body, and you can't take them apart. 
um, you know, I think of the Christological controversies as, as reflecting yeah. that, that similar tension. And, and I wonder if, if Niebuhr's picking up on some of that here. Uh, but if it's all right, I just want to read a section from this, yeah. from this, you yeah. know, section one that I think captures this tension. So here he's speaking to the existential piece of it, right? What's it like to navigate this world where, you know, the, the, the spirit and the animal are one in this fundamental way. Um, and yet we're, we're conscious of there being some kind of daylight between them. And he says that it's actually the act of living in that tension that tempts us to sin. It's not, he's clear on this. It's not sinful, but it tempts us to sin. So this is the way he puts it. When man looks at himself and makes himself an object of his own thoughts, he finds himself to be merely one of many creatures in creation. But when he looks at the world, he finds his own mind, the focusing center of the whole. So when you and I go inward, we realize, oh, we're, we're insignificant, right? We're one piece in this massive system. But whenever we look out and try to comprehend the massive system, we make ourselves the center, right? Because, right. you know, we're, we're trying to apprehend this from this single point. And so as a consequence of that tension, when man acts, I'm back to quoting Niebuhr here, when man acts, he confuses these two visions of himself. He knows that he ought to act so as to assume only his rightful place in the harmony of the whole. But his actual action is always informed by the ambition to make himself the center of the whole. Thus, he is betrayed into egotism. So, yes, uh, I have to go here. All right. Nature and destiny, uh, because this is what he goes to next. This is what he writes after this. And the way that he puts what you just said, Jeremy, is so it's it's such a lasting metaphor for how I I or analogy of how I view what Niebuhr is getting at here. It's really good. He says human self-consciousness is a high tower looking upon a large and inclusive world. It vainly imagines that it is the large world which it beholds and not a narrow tower uh, insecurely erect amidst the shifting sands of the world. So we have a couple of things going on here. One is that we're tempted to believe that we are just the animals that we're viewing. But that at the same time negates the fact that you are that weird animal that's actually looking at the animals and can Hmm. observe and compare itself, compare oneself to the animals. That is not animalistic. Whatever that thing is, is weird. And then the next temptation is to is to think is the anthropocentric temptation is to think that somehow because you can do that and stand outside of nature then it's then you're the center of the world and it's almost subconscious how we slip into both of them i think uh is what is what niebuhr's going after here uh it reminds me a lot of several not just biblical examples but like real examples in history the copernican principle reminds me a lot of this where we are using our reason which is unlike anything that the animals have to actually conclude that the earth is revolving around the sun which is so counterintuitive we're able to extrapolate these equations to figure out that we are the ones moving around the sun when it is so like our intuition tells us that the sun's coming around us but at the same time that somehow ends up making us feel small (laughs) and Mm -hmm. insignificant 
uh, the pale blue dot that um, Carl Sagan uses as as um, yeah as a metaphor sometimes or as you know a, a teaching moment uh, that this this observer that we sent out into space to catch you know photos of other planets we had it turn around at one point to get a picture of the Earth and it was just this tiny blue dot. And Sagan has this big elaborate uh, statement about what he's viewing when he sees this little tiny pale blue dot. And he says something like all the proud philosophers, all the wars, all the saints and sinners, everybody you've ever known, everything has, has existed on this one little tiny pale blue dot uh, moat suspended on a sunbeam or said something like that. So it's interesting how we get we gain this ability where we are expanding our consciousness. But the more we expand our consciousness, the more it relays back to us how insignificant we are. It's a really weird human consciousness is this internally contradicting thing that it's it's difficult. You can't just split it into two here. Um, one has implications on the other always. Yeah, no, I love the Sagan analogy because it's like the it is the logical endpoint of this trajectory, right? When we try to contemplate ourselves and our significance, we realize that we are, you know, inhabitants of this mode of dust suspended in a sunbeam, right? right? And um, and yet when we look outward, right, when you and I, as people invested in ethics or ministry or whatever else, are uh, trying to parse right from wrong in the very act of doing that, we're making ourselves a center. Yes. Right. And so this is where I really do like Niebuhr's take on original sin. Cause it's so much in many ways, it's, it's gentler than the traditional take, right? This is not, you know, sin is attached to sex, which has all these like Manichaean, right. you know, um, baggage attached to it. He's basically saying, no, no, no. It's, it's the kind of, of being human like it's not inevitable that we lapse into it but we also well it is actually inevitable that we lapse into it yeah but it doesn't necessarily have to be that way it's just we the, the tension that comes with knowing that we're insignificant and yet knowing that somehow we're at the center of everything it induces us to sin and it to me it's just like a way of commenting on the tree of knowledge of good and evil in genesis yeah right as soon as we try to apprehend the world as you know as moral creatures with these moral sensibilities we make ourselves a center mm -hmm. some basic way and for so in the very act of trying to corral this into some sort of ethical framework we already need forgiveness yeah wow. right we already need to learn to repent and i think neighbor wants to push us to say that's okay because there's grace mm -hmm. And there is forgiveness. And that's how we move past that conundrum is, is learning to repent, learning to accept that grace. Um, and so the solution is there right in front of us. And we need to like go out and be willing to get our hands dirty and ask forgiveness. <laughs> wow. uh, because that's how the moral life moves forward. And I wonder actually, you know, <clears throat> I'm always trying to put my finger on, I think, you know, anybody that reads Niebuhr's often trying to put their finger on what it is about him that makes him a really kind of powerful writer. And there's some, obviously there's more than just one thing, but as we're talking about this, something that just kind of dawned on me is I, you know, I wonder if a big part of it is just patience, 
Whereas other people really seek to resolve tensions really quickly. They seek to just kind of, oh, like uh, we need we need to solve this. He's like, whoa, 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 patience, patience. We don't have a resolution yeah. to that. You know what I mean? And it's almost like a maturity that you don't experience on a daily basis, especially with like this issue we're talking about. Like there's a there's a a sense in which people are trying to resolve these tensions in one direction or the other, and he's just kind of saying patience. You know what I mean? Like there's well, not a there isn't a clear resolution to this. And uh, another way to say that I think Zach is serenity. Right. It's being um, not satisfied, not content, but trust, you know, and having peace and that you can't resolve this right now, you know, and and in Nature and Destiny, one book later, he really hones in on Kierkegaard and um, and the anxiety uh, to express this tension and how we want to constantly fling ourselves out of this uneasiness, out of this anxiety into pride or sensuality which will yeah he brings up for the first time he brings that up i think in this section the uh uh, i think he calls it selfishness and sensuality in this chapter but he's already starting to think along those lines that he's going to go down in nature and destiny well and like part of what i love about this is you it elevates the extent to which neighbor's really kind of preaching to himself (laughs) because from what i could tell he was a very restless impatient person and beautifully articulates the need for patience and serenity and you wonder if it's it's basically him saying like this is what i need to hear Hmm. right but then offering it to the rest of us in the process and i you know i think back to your conversation last week about the uneasy conscious conscience um niebuhr saying your conscience is uneasy that's fine learn to sit with that don't try to resolve it don't try to resolve the uneasy conscience right part of the life of faith part of why we need faith part of why we need hope part of why we need forgiveness is those are the tools that allow us to just sit with the uneasy conscience without trying to jettison it because it's uncomfortable yes you guys pick up um i mean some heavy luther calvin vibes from like it almost seems like his strategy through both this chapter and nature and destiny is to heighten the imminence of sin and the inevitability of sin to the point that you are reliant on those virtues of, of repentance or a contrite heart and, and forgiveness. Like it's almost like heightening sin, but it's not, it's not, I want to be careful here because a lot of our, neo-Calvinist brothers and sisters want to make uh, sin this immutable force that is always present, that is necessary, I guess I should say. It's kind of a necessary part of the human. Um, And, uh, but, so not Calvin in that way, but there's almost this strategy, I think Calvin says it in like the opening of Institutes about I'm paraphrasing. I see God more when I see myself less. Uh-huh. Yeah, no. And and like, you know, Niebuhr speaks to that very directly in the language that he, artic- you know, fleshes out in Nature and Destiny and Man about sin being inevitable, but not necessary. Uh-huh. And he saw the inadequacies in that formulation, right? Like, you know, his later writing as he's reflecting back on his earlier work, he says, you know, I'm, I'm not sure that quite captured it. Yeah. But I actually think it's a pretty good formulation of that tension right like we'll we'll never that's the whole that's the whole thing deal with sin right there's something about it that defies explanation why do we rebel right we don't know like 
we, we can tease out certain parts of why we do, but there's always something there that we just cannot wrap ourselves around and cannot explain and have to throw ourselves at divine mercy. Right? Yeah. That's part of what pushes us to do that is there's, there, there's a mystery to, to why, um, you know, we would say no to perfection. And it seems like Niebuhr, more than anyone I've read, even among those like hardcore uh, deterministic type Calvinists, he talks about the the ubiquity of sin almost to the point that it's there. But he, he it's like he gets up to the line where it starts encroaching on freedom and backs up a little bit. Like it, but he just reveals sin so fully that you almost want to take that leap and say that, oh, you know, we can't do anything, you know, uh, but sin. But he's always quick then to come up on the other side and say, but you have freedom here. You know, uh, there is, there is, this is inevitable, but it's not necessary. Yeah, it's it's inevitable and we still have free will. Yeah. Right. That's another one of these like Niburian paradoxes that that really comes to the fore. Yeah. And that's what causes that uneasiness is the fact that you can do something. Yeah. You know, uh, yeah, crazy. Now, I, I do want to I don't want to get too ahead of ourselves, but I want to broaden this out into the larger picture that he wants to go down in nature and destiny. And he does uh, hint to it here. Um, and that is, you know, all basically all the great errors of Western civilization occur from taking extreme angles on this tension of the human situation naturalism and romanticism on one side tends to say you know our soul or our higher self or our reason whatever it is is what corrupts nature it's what corrupts the body it what's it's what corrupts what is good about the world and then rationalism and idealism on the other side they want to say that you know no our our body our lower self quote unquote our carnal savage nature is is what corrupts us. That's what we need to get rid of. Um, it's basically taking that tension of sin. He, he's basically giving an explanation for Western civilization of the last 400 years from how we get sin wrong, you know? Um, and he's saying basically both make the mistake of negating or subordinating one part of the self to the other. Um, and, and Nature and Destiny calls it the two gods of modern man, the the God of nature and the God of reason, I think. Is this fair? So some people will look, uh, and this goes for Jeremy or Zach, some people will look at nature and destiny and say that he he generalizes too much um, when he does this type of thing. What what do you guys take on this? Is he onto something here? Well, I'll tell you what, I, you know, I, I think of Niebuhr when he's dealing with other people, he's basically like, he's like a caricaturist on the streets where... Well, you know, a, a good caricaturist can whip something out in a couple minutes. Is it a good portrait of the person? No, but it captures something essential, which is what makes it funny. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, this is this is part of what makes Niebuhr both brilliant and frustrating. Like it, um, you know, because like even in this chapter where there's a lot of like finely honed thought, he, he has this one line where he basically says, you know, um, and pure spirit is pure mind and pure mind is universal. And then just keeps going. And I'm thinking <laughs> to myself, there are tomes written on yeah. each one of those steps. Yeah. And you're just taking it as a given because you're steeped in 19th century German philosophy. Right. Um, 
And, and that's just classic Niebuhr, like this huge strokes where you're like, no, 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 back up, man. Like stop and spell each one of those steps out. So when he's taking these broad swipes at naturalism and romanticism, does it capture any of the complexity of those movements? No, it really doesn't. And so like people who criticize him on that front, I think are right. But is he putting his finger on a pervasive tendency within those movements? That's a different mm-hmm. question. I, I think a lot of times he is, mm-hmm. right? And that's where there's truth in the caricature, right? Where you kind of have to, you know, laugh in recognition of like, oh, no, no, that, that's what those movements are doing, right? There, there's more nuance there, but he, there's, he's getting at a tendency that we really do need to deal with. Yeah, he definitely does that. And I like I find myself so convinced by his argument sometimes I'm starting like I always wonder, uh, maybe I've misunderstood, you know, some of these great thinkers and they actually are doing that. It's just Niebuhr's taking the wider angle with these people and you're not so lost in the woods that you can't see it. And maybe yeah. we could say like that he gets the tendencies right. I like that language that Jeremy used. He, like I think that that I think that it's fair to say that rationalism it can be a tool for an escapist and and so can naturalism and romanticism like there's there's a lot of ways that all these movements can be expressed in a very very easy conscience well yeah and it's it's interesting you use that caricature thing because my mind immediately went to like uh freud um and and freud has a tendency to speak in big generalities and all this other stuff and right, like a lot of them have been proven to be like k- kind of true or like not, you know, they're like, like they capture something, but it's not like, but then you, if you read his, any of his stuff and then you go through your life, you're like, oh my gosh, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I, I kind of see that. Oh yeah, that is definitely a weird thing. Why do, why do we do that? Oh, that's uncomfortable, <laughs> you know? And, and so I kind of see, you know, that when you said that, I immediately thought of that. So this, uh, I want to get back to uh, Zach's point about the Hebrew um, people and their construction of the unity of soul and body and Niebuhr, Niebuhr calls it primitive um, which is interesting but he uh, I'll read this quote here Matt Anderson would love this part by the way um, he says the Niebuhr says the soul and the body are one this fact is more perfectly expressed in the more primitive psychology of the Hebrews than in the more advanced philosophy of the Greeks and he makes this argument that the that the Hebrew people like blood, breath, like there's a lot of there's an ambiguity in the human situation there that allows for the condi- like the possibility or allows for freedom to exist. Um, as soon as you nail it down, what that soul is or what our essence is, is it body? Is it reason? Um, as soon as you nail, even even if you have kind of a bifurcated Aristotelian view of rational animal, you lose that possibility of freedom to an extent. I'll share a quote here and I want to hear if you guys can unpack this a little bit. Uh, He says, this unity of soul and body does not deny the human capacity for freedom. It does not reduce man to the process of nature in which he stands, though yet he stands above them. It merely insists on the organic unity between the two. How can we have an organic? We've noted the distinction between our animal selves and our reason. Why is it that this organic unity somehow uh, grants freedom? Man, that's a big question. I mean, uh, Jeremy, you have the PhD. Why don't you uh, you take that one on? (laughs) Um, 
so you know i i wonder if one of the really generative tensions that runs through niebuhr is um because hebrew as a language lends itself to so much interpretation right mm -hmm. words have these multiplicities of meanings and connotations niebuhr coming out of a german background german's a very precise language mm. right so he's cultivating this appreciation for you know the hebrew appreciation for symbol right and and valence to words he's coming at it you know with a mind that's that's shaped in the german language and is very precise right and so that tension in itself i think ends up being very generative and this this is like cl a classic example of where as much as niebuhr invades against narratives of progress he still kind of like slips into that when he describes this as primitive language right right he's still borrowing from this presupposition of a narrative of progress um but if you can get by the use of that language, you know, it's actually have this very respectful treatment of um, the Bible and the Hebrew language and what it, it can reveal. Um, but I, you know, I, what I take him to be saying is basically like being embodied. I mean, that's the condition under which we reason, mm -hmm. right? It's, reason is this Im i mean it's an immense power there's no question neither totally believes that but it's far more limited than we want it to be mm -hmm. right and if we can understand our capacity to reason as embodied it helps us be better stewards of those possibilities and limits right as understanding reason itself as organic mm -hmm. right in its roots it's not this mechanistic thing that we do yeah right it's not this kind of like ethereal like computer like capacity Niebuhr is basically saying, no, no, reason is an organic activity. It is. It's um, deceptively organic. Yes, deceptively organic. And within the limits of the organic, it does wondrous things. Yeah. But it never escapes those confines, even though we repeatedly act as if it does. Just think, I, I hopped ahead again. I think this is why it took me so long to hop on today, guys. But like, because I kept on like jumping to nature and destiny because there's just a, another great way that he describes what's going on with this unity of of mind and body, the spirit and body. Um, he says, this is nature and destiny, uh, volume one, page 40. He says, quote, man is never a simple two layer affair who can be understood from the standpoint of the bottom layer should efforts to understand them from the standpoint of the top layer fail. The freedom of man consists not only of the windows of mind which look out from his second story, but also of vents on every level which allow every natural impulse a freedom which animals do not know. So we are not that animal that can just merely... Uh, eat food and survive. We don't just eat food. We collect food. We strategize to get food. Even all of our natural impulses are always aided and layered with spiritual, for lack of a better term, it's Niebuhr's term, but with kind of spiritual tendencies. We don't just um, clothe ourselves. We decorate our clothes. We don't just um, build shelters. We build homes. Uh, we are not that kind of animal that just survives. Um, there's another layer to this, and they are connected. It's our rational capabilities that are always infused with our 
our natural impulses. And, and, and I shouldn't even say rational because it's, it's artistic as well. And there's a lot of components to what we typically call like our higher self. And I don't even like that term of higher self, but whatever that thing is, it's, it's linked with the organic in both directions. Yeah. And it's the source of what makes humans, you know, what, what makes we makes what humans do so beautiful and inspiring and um, so easily corrupted. Yeah. Right. Because he loves the analogy. He's like, you know, even the fiercest beast of prey, like when it's full, it stops eating. Yeah. It stops hunting. <laughs> yes. Right. Yeah. What is it about humans where we keep hunting? You're really convicting me and my gluttony right now. <laughs> <laughs> but but it that's the thing. It, it is. It's, you know, we because like we want like that perfect touch to the meal or whatever else it is that yeah. we're pursuing. Or like, you know, we build these beautiful homes, but some of us aren't satisfied with a 2000 square foot home. Right. right. You know, we, we have to build these mansions. Um, It, it is like the very thing that, that like, the, the very sources and, and wellsprings of human genius, uh, they, they also become very easily corrupted by, by and, something else, by this ambition. And I love where he goes to next because he's going to go into exactly what you're talking about, where I think he says elsewhere, desire is indeterminate. Like we desire infinitely. Um, yeah. But we can only kind of possess, you know, finitely. Um, mm. And uh, in the words of the great theologian and New Jersey native, the boss, Bruce Springsteen, <laughs> <laughs> poor man want to be rich rich man want to be king and a king ain't satisfied um till he rules everything so there's this scale where you know we because of our imaginations um we can desire and crave and and we can have uh infinite ambitions yeah and it it, it also just highlights just how hyper relational humans are because that's that's the issue we're well off relative to what, mm -hmm. right? If we're the only house in the neighborhood with 2000 square feet, we feel pretty good about ourselves. Yeah. If yeah. the 2000 square foot house is the smallest neighborhood in the block, we, we feel inadequate because our sense of self is tied. It's relational. It's tied to how we position ourselves relative to everyone and everything else. And we yeah. cannot help that. You know, I love it that I keep laughing at these descriptions because it is hilarious, but it's also, I think, what Niebuhr would want us to do because <laughs> we are ridiculous creatures. Absolutely. Well, you know, it's interesting because, um, you know, they, we just watched, I just watched this uh, documentary or documentary show or whatever you want to call it on uh, chimpanzees in, uh, it's called like uh, um, Chimp Empire. And, mm -hmm. um, one of the way I didn't know this until I watched that. Cause you know, I, you know, you learn stuff about animals growing up and stuff like that. But um, I didn't realize that like chimps, like they're one of their ways that they, they show order in their society is through who gets to eat meat and who doesn't get to eat meat. And it, your proximity to the person to, or to the, the, the chimp, one chimp's proximity to another chimp is, um, is demonstrated in whether or not they meat is shared with them and how much meat is shared with them. And and then others are excluded intentionally um, to demonstrate their social standing with that other part. And so it's really interesting how we, we, we kind of do that pretty. Uh, so you're saying like much. we observe things in chimps that humans. Well, what I'm do. saying is we do that on like a, a mega scale. Like, oh, yeah, big time. Scale. Like we don't just do it with like, oh, hey, like you could sit at my table or not sit at my table. It's like 
no, no, no. Like, you know, it's a, it's a, it's like that on steroids, I guess you could say. Yeah. We're elaborating on a simian impulse. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, in all sorts of weird ways, but it's, it's a simian impulse at the end of the day. Something I love about Niebuhr's description of sin is how transferable it is. This is totally tangent, man, totally tangent, but how transferable it is, because I think a lot of people were, are uneasy about arguments like Peter Singer's, like where he kind of blurs the line between uh, human and, and chimps or or anything like that. Or if we're to observe, like, uh, what is the nature of an alien if an alien were to exist? Um, this definition or this angst is detectable in anything that is capable of having it. So uh, there is, like, we can have that discussion if a really intelligent chimp, uh, is, could there be sin you know, for a really intelligent chimp that actually knows uh, that it shouldn't do something? Maybe that's for a whole other discussion. But it's not this thing that is, it's, it's something that is naturally observable what he brings up and so we can have discussions about consciousness and freedom using kind of his parameters on just about anything <laughs> absolutely absolutely but uh and you could also maybe attach agency to that as well um it'd be a, it's a helpful description of sin and potentially crime um you know if we go down that rabbit trail one day um of AI or anything like that is is this thing capable of of a crime you'd have to answer in a way it seems like you might have to answer also is this AI capable of a sin um anyway that's for a whole other discussion he goes to next i this was shocking to me on my first read i remember it because it is so flip flop of how Christians typically think of things. And the way he states it so pointedly here is amazing. He says, and I quote, there is no sin in nature. Okay, just there. Okay, there is no sin in nature. Animals live in the harmony assigned to them by nature. If this harmony is not perfect and sets species against species in the law of the jungle, no animal ever aggravates by his own decision. The, the disharmonies, which are with uh, restricted harmonies, the conditions of its life. And then he concludes kind of saying this, the root of sin is in spirit and not in nature. The, the vast majority of Christianity, it seems, places the goodness of human beings within its spirit, within its higher self. But he's saying, no, that's where sin happens. I, I, would, I would fundamentally agree with him, I think. Because um, I think it's actually the opposite of how, like you said, how, how we generally conceive of it. We want to, we use the, I thought about this when I was reading this, I thought to myself, you know, we use the word the flesh all the time, but really the flesh is just a, it's meant actually in a spiritual way, not necessarily like, hey, you know, your, your, the fibers of your body are sinful. Um, I, yeah, that's not, that's not how it goes. Um but we often use the word the flesh and that's almost has a Gnostic connotation to it. Yeah. And it's this, I mean, it's the root of sin is in spirit, um, but spirit and body are one. Right. Right. So that, that's where it kind of like, it, it, we, we end up <laughs> back on the horns of, of, of a kind of paradox, right. Where you realize, no, there is some continuity between our own simple tendencies and the way that uh, chimps work out social hierarchies. Yeah. Right. Those things are not as divorced as we want them to be. Are, are the chimps sinning? I think on Niebuhr's categories, no. Right. 
Um, yeah. Because, you know, you talk about the documentary being chimp empire. I think Niebuhr would say they're not building empires the way humans do. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <Right>? yeah. <laughs> there are yeah. limits to egotism even among the highest order animals that it, yeah. humans can just blow by. And yeah. we're and to to bring it into like um typically people when they think of sin they do go to what what uh Jeremy Jeremy had uh, put it in this context before this sexual sin type of thing. But if we're to look at sex in kind of a Niburian lens uh it's it's so we are that creature all creatures have sex we are that creature where we can have sex in a way that creates disharmony among our people so while it's a natural impulse it's a natural drive the context in which we do it can create disharmonies um Am I making sense here? Like um, you take a very natural thing to, to give to give another explanation um, with food, because sex is um, distracting for some reason uh, when we have discussions like this. Uh, you know, we are not that kind of creature It's the gluttony example. We are not that kind of creature that can just merely eat, but we always imbue our spirit into that. And so there's this temptation to, to overeat or undereat. Um, we have like, it's never alienated. Our organic self is never alienated from our spirit. So the way that we sin always creates disharmonies and that we over spiritualize our organic side, um, beyond what it actually is intended, or I don't know what kind of language you want to use there. Well, yeah, no, I yeah. think, I think that's right. It is. It's, it's basically like, it's, it's like the, one of the most visceral reminders of the fact that we're animals. And yet, because we're possessive spirits, we want to elaborate it into something more. And we do, right? Like I, I a Niebuhrian take on this is like, yeah, it's 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 a wonderful thing that humans can elaborate on sex in so many ways. Um, but the variability to elaborate also implies an ability to either make oneself the center of it or to try to escape more responsibility through it, right? And, right, we and sensuality. Constantly yeah. navigate those tensions, right? So I, and, and yeah. that might be, be a Niberian accounting for why somebody like Augustine was so tempted to locate original sin insects. Hmm. He'd basically say, yeah, it's, 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 it's complicated, right? <laughs> we finitude and freedom just kind of like come into collision there in a way that that's, that's very vivid in, in human experience. But again, it's, it's a fundamentally good thing that none of us can ever navigate perfectly. Yeah. And, and I chose sex specifically for that reason. And I failed to mention this, but because of that Augustinian error, maybe that is something sex is something clearly the animals do, but humans have demonized. And it takes something like a Niburian perspective of sin to understand, I guess, the way that it can be abused and it can be good if it work, you know, it's if it's functioning properly, if it's creating harmony. Is that like, am I talking about like maybe uh, there is a Niburian sexual ethic to be had there? Maybe. Yeah, no, I totally think there is, by the way. I totally think there is. And I think one of the shapes that that would take is him saying there are a whole variety of ways in which it can be good and just as many ways in which it can be corrupted. Yeah. And we all do both. Um, yeah. And so how do you build a sexual ethic off of that? Like, I think that would be the ground floor. Interesting. Um, okay. Section two. Sorry. Individual soul or collective resurrection. This is a very profound uh, section, I thought. 
I'll kick us off with this and see what you guys uh, have to say about this. Um, quote, human life has a paradoxical relation not only to nature, but to human history. And he goes into how we are just as much social creatures as we are individual creatures. Um, you And, you know, you basically don't get this paradox in conceptions of the immortal soul. Um, what What is this uh, section about, you, you think? Well, and, well, anytime, you know, you want to push back against uh, uh, individualistic conceptions, I'm, I'm all ears, you know? Uh, yeah. We, we definitely are. It's like, like very, this is still so applicable, even like almost 100 years after he wrote this. Um, just in sense that we, but our whole conception of the ultimate fulfillment of history is individualistic. We har- like I hardly ever <laughs> encounter someone, even that's not a Christian, who doesn't conceptualize it that way. You know what I mean? Like, what maybe, maybe they're out there, but I just I don't encounter them on a, a regular basis. And you know what the irony of this is? Is that I think if you asked any pastor out there what is the number one problem with kind of Western civilization or the Western church? And they would probably say, all say individualism, you know, consumerism, you know, living for yourself, that type of stuff. But there's an irony in that it's kind of refuted by Niebuhr's next point in that a lot of times we conceptualize salvation so much individually. There there seems to be a, a blinder there that nobody's picking up on. Well, uh, maybe these two things are linked. And I would say, like, you know, I, I, I got a text from somebody last night, they'll remain nameless. But um, even the way that we conceptualize, I think it may uh, arise from how we conceptualize the the alternative, right? If we don't conceptualize the end of history in a positive light, um, this person said, I'm just, I'm just afraid um, that I might, uh, as a kid, I was absolutely terrified of hell and dealt with a lot of anxiety around that. That fear is really handy for keeping people from asking hard questions because the consequences of being wrong is eternal con- conscious punishment. And I think like, you know, I, I thought of that text because I was like, man, that's, that is, it, it, it's just so individualistic. It's like, it's like everything is put on like your individual punishment, your individual right. uh, conscious torment. And um, not that I'm trying to discredit the idea of hell, but that there's no social element to it. Um, it's, 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 it was, or this person was oh, left, I'll, left, I'll, I'll cut that out. Okay. Yeah. This person was left to, as a kid, wrestle on such an individualistic basis with this anxiety and fear of the end of history. You know what I mean? And, um, I, I don't, I don't think that's how it's supposed to be conceptualized. And so I embrace the, any alternative or any pushback, you know what I mean? Like, and I think Niebuhr offers a pretty solid one here. We have a lot of work to do, Zach, uh, because that's a, I think that's I don't I'm not going to blame the boomers. okay? but I will say that that generation was very heavy on teaching that kind of eschatology and that end times type of stuff. My wife, Ashley, grew up with a very similar uh, problem where her main fear was being left alone and all of her family gets raptured and she's left alone here. Can you imagine that? Well, and it's it's hard because I I I don't necessarily understand it from like my own personal experience because I've never had that experience. Like I've I've felt convicted of my sin, but it's been a very like different experience. You know, I mean, it's like it's not so much about me, but about like I love this line. He says, um, "The idea of individual resurrection arose first in relation to this hope: the righteous would be resurrected to participate in the ultimate triumph." And I love the plural, right? The righteous. Well, and, and Cliff, coming back to um, you know, like this, this 
kind of whole um, understanding of the way it works to, again, it's super Manichaean. It's Cold mm -hmm. War era, right? Heaven or hell. You know, those are the only two choices in town. Like if any, pick up any Jack Chick track, right? right. This is what you're going to get. And it's basically trying to scare people into saying some sort of prayer that gets them out of the like inherently evil column into the inherently good column. So when the rapture happens, they disappear. Yeah. And, you know, I, I do think we have an entire, you know, if we're, we you know, alluded to the fact that this is a, a boomer approach and it's because the boomers, their entire consciousness was shaped by the Cold War. Yeah. Like, I think there's an intimate connection there but bringing it back to Niebuhr I think this is you know again why he's just so insistent on you can't just talk about the immortality of the soul mm -hmm. because that gives you a pretext to just like pretend that history doesn't matter right right yeah. the resurrection of the body this is the move here that I I found fascinating um and really helpful is he's basically saying the resurrection of the body is how you affirm the redemption of history yeah Right. Because history is bodily. And if, if the body is resurrected, that means that human history can be redeemed. It's not something that we just kind of slough off when we die. Yeah. It also makes us accountable to history. Right. And our actions within it. Right. That becomes part of the moral domain as well. And he he makes an example of a few sects, um, the levelers, the diggers and the Anabaptists who resisted individualism of the church, uh, which, and I'll quote Niebuhr, there was no appreciation of the meaning of history, just like what you said. Um, this was their main, you know, uh, objection. Uh, continuing on, these uh, sec uh, sectaries felt that the revolution in which they were involved had a religious significance and pointed toward a society in which the hopes of brotherhood and justice would be fulfilled. So the um, people... There's this weird mirroring effect between eschatology and ethics. Um, and it's interesting because there's a whole lot of kind of uh, ex-evangelicals, people who have left evangelicalism, who will obtain kind of this, um, uh, this new virtue of kind of justice and caring for the poor and these types of things. And they are totally turned off by eschatology, eschatological thought, um, because to them, eschatology is rapture, those that very individual individualistic style of second coming and and heaven or hell, the, that binary. But what they really need maybe is just a better eschatology uh, that is more grounded in a fulfillment of the way things are but with justice coming here. So it's more kind of to go with Moltmann here. It's, it's hope. It's it's about, you know, uh, hope is what should ground our ethic, you know, and the hope of justice, you know, and the hope of, of, uh, of peace. But I think, but I think when, but I think part of it is when you, when your conception is so individualistic, justice means very little, but when it's a societal justice, I feel like it's to me, at least it, I'll put it this way, I guess to me, individualism here. Um, it seems to take on a, a whole new meaning than than if we just were to peg it down to, um, you know, justice about when justice just applies to me, whether or not I was good or bad, or right. whether I was good or bad. And I, I think that justice implies a certain universality to it, or, I mean, Martin Luther King thought so, uh, that it's, it is a collective thing, um, whereas, like, grace 
can be morphed into an individualistic event or action or feeling. That can be an individual thing. It can also be a collective thing. But it seems like grace is typically thought of as the salvific event of the individual being accepted by God. Justice, it seems, is already Im- implying an overturning of what is wrong and a redemption of of the oppressed and, and liberation and all that. Well, part of what, you know, I, I can't help but think of Niebuhr's insistence on the resurrection of the body um, in light of the parable of the sheep and the goats. Hmm. Because really, the points that Jesus makes in that parable, they're all about taking care of bodily needs. Mm-hmm. I was naked and you clothed me. I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty. You gave me something to drink. I was in prison and you visited me. There is no mention here about getting people to say the sinner's prayer. Yeah. Right. It's basically, no, may, you know, did you make sure Good point. that the bodies of your fellow humans were provided for? Mm-hmm. Cause the body matters. Yeah. Right. And he yeah. interestingly holds that parable, though, in tension with um, the workers in the vineyard or no, the workers in the field, the, the crazy farmer that pays everybody the same wage. Yeah. Because in that he wants to affirm grace. Yeah. But in the in this parable you're talking about, he wants to affirm uh, that these things matter. And so like smushing these parables together, you get something like a resurrection ethic. Yeah, and it comes back to Niebuhr's point that the resurrection of the body um, is both pushes us to be both more individualistic and more social in how we think about salvation. Mm. And I think he's right about, I mean, it is this really interesting way of, of, of like heightening that paradox. You affirm the resurrection of the body, both elements get dialed up and yeah. we need to hold on to both. Yeah, that's good. Any, any other comments on that section? It's a great one. And then uh, the final section, fulfillment of the lo- uh, fulfillment of life in an undifferentiated universal or in the new body. And this is the one where he's kind of generalized a little. Um, yeah. What, what, what are you guys thoughts on this? What's this about? Can you break it down? So is it, is it all right if I read a chunk that I think is really good for unpacking this? Absolutely. Uh, yeah, for sure. Okay. So, you know, on page 302 has this paragraph, which, which by the way, I mean, this is just, one of the paragraphs that I think is just a great synopsis of some of Niebuhr's best insights. Hmm. Um, so, he, you know, he, this is what he writes. To believe that the body is resurrected is to say that eternity is not a cancellation of time and history, but that history is fulfilled in eternity. But to insist that the body must be resurrected is to understand that time and history have meaning only as they are born by an eternity which transcends them. They could not, in fact, be at all without that eternity. They would not exist, basically. Hmm. For history would be meaningless succession without the eternal purpose which bears it. Um, so and is, for oh, go ahead. Yeah, and for me, this is up there with that, you know, faith, hope, love mm-hmm. section from the irony of American history in terms of just taking all these key Niberian insights and putting them together. Yeah. Where he's saying you have to affirm both the resurrection and the resurrection of the body. And that's the only way that you can hold the finite and the eternal together. As crazy as it is, as, 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 um, as much as this clashes with our intuition, this makes the most sense as our fulfillment of life. Yes. So when he uses these words, time and history, humor me here. 
are these philosophical terms or is he using them you know because i know like history i i'm sort i'm i'm very much i'm have a firm firmer grasp on but i know that time can also have some sort of philosophical backing and i wonder if i'm not quite understanding him fully um we've run into time before on in this book and when all of a sudden cliff started explaining to me to me how time is used by i think hegel I was like, oh, oh, and okay. history, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, oh, okay, okay. I see. There's a, there's a paradigm here, um, or is this just like a he just pairs these two together as kind of time and it, history? Interesting. Looking back on that chapter where we talked about, that, I think I talked about Hegel too much. I I think that Niebuhr was trying to maybe just address it and then uh, do his own thing. So I, I've I've been con I've been quite convinced by Matt Anderson lately that. It's really helpful to th to think of Niebuhr as kind of sliding into our language sometimes and our philosophical, maybe perhaps philosophically, you know, weighted language just to open it up and just to maybe deconstruct it a little bit and to get back to maybe a, a more Hebrew type of understanding of it. And so I... I think that this is maybe one of those occasions where he's slipping into time and history in order to to use it maybe as a foil for a little bit and then to and then to open it up and then to uh, to make it more consistent. And he does that, I think, with the dialectic of of resurrection, the, the synthesis of resurrection. So is time just synonymous then with it, with history? There has to be it. I, I've been on about a lot lately with my congregation to think of salvation less vertically, life, death, heaven, and more horizontally as something that is impinging on the present. That is some uh, a future occurrence that is somehow related to what's happening now. The resurrection and thinking of it in that in those terms of a physical reality being fulfilled uh has the best of both worlds and that it maintains the nature the good creation and it also it doesn't annul it doesn't uh it doesn't annul or negate time itself it doesn't get rid of history because a, a lot of times when people the way that they conceive salvation now is they think that they can negate the present world Oh, who gives a crap about the environment? God's going to burn it up anyway. Rape, pillage, do you know? Treat treat this world however you want. Uh, we're going to be out of here soon anyway. Um, but yeah. actually, it's best to think of of this as history as being restored, uh, and unified and fulfilled, and not something that we're escaping from. So that language of resurrection is important for giving us a glimpse of the fulfillment of history of the fulfillment of where like where god is taking this us on this whole journey of life rather than scrapping it and you know it gives meaning to what we do now very different than the typical paradigm that most grow up with in the united states in the christian circles yeah. and this has to do i think a lot with what jeremy's saying i think and it's interesting that jeremy points to the Cold War as this area. I've never put that together. I've always been blaming the Reformation, by the way, with a lot of this, a lot of individualism and a lot of this type of stuff. Um, iconic, uh, the iconoclastic impulses that we have. But uh, but the Manichaeism from Cold War makes sense politically now. And it makes a whole lot of sense of the way we understand sin and salvation as well. Yeah, and how the 
you know, the, the alliances have cut through Catholicism and Protestantism, right? You have this Catholic Protestant alliance on the religious right that suggests that maybe it isn't just the Reformation thing, that there's something else right. that's, Interesting. that's creeping in. Um, but no, coming back to the question about time and history, these are categories that arise from the fact that humans are the spirit animal hybrids, right? They're tied to human consciousness and perception and memory. And they're these categories through which we strain toward transcendence, but don't achieve it. Right. So that, that, that eternity here is, is the stand in for that perfect transcendence, that which is above everything and contains everything right in time and history are the categories through which to strain for it, but impartially and imperfectly and in these corrupted ways that ultimately need redeeming. Right. So I, I perceive Niebuhr as basically saying no time and history, they, yeah, they're the tools through which we strain toward the divine. That's a beautiful thing. Yeah. Um, but they won't get us there. Right. Right. We we need grace to ultimately close that gap and and fulfill that striving without negating it. And we need Christ. We need uh, the great fulfiller in the end. I mean, that's why I, these doctrines are both needed of for our ethic. Uh, you know and Again, a lot of people might find this counterintuitive, but eschatology, where you think we're going, has a lot to do with what you're doing. And a belief in a second coming, in a final resolution that you can't do, that you need the grace of, of God to uh, invade this world to save, to, to bring it back to life. Um, that has to come from God, but we are in some ways a part of that process now. So the things we we do still matter to that. And I, I think it requires you to maintain that tension instead of resolving it. Like we said earlier, like there's there's a real desire to, I think like the extreme eschatologies of like, you know, the rapture and like, you know, uh, dispensationalism really kind of as a whole um, can can really want to resolve that and and have it be, you know, this is done. We're going to the future um yes yes let's talk about this very end this conclusion i guess any any thoughts on this uh i had named it the fulfillment of life is now the uneasiness of conscience what do you think about this last mini section well i'll try to set up the last mini section with the quote right before it which again i just found fast this is classic like is niebuhr biting off more than he can chew or is he exactly right where he says, everyone who rejects the basic conceptions implicit in the idea of the resurrection is either a moral nihilist or a utopian, covert or, or overt. Hmm. Right. And then he goes on to say, imagining themselves highly sophisticated in their emancipation from religion, they give themselves to the most absurd hopes about the possibilities of man's natural history. And, you know, so basically, Niebuhr, I, I, I think he has like this you know, this, this clear streak where he really does, he believed that, you know, all sorts of people will make it to heaven at the end, right? Yeah. By your fruits, you shall know them. But those fruits suggest at least a tacit acknowledgement of the hope of resurrection. Interesting. Right. And if, if you don't have that, you, you either become a nihilist or a utopian and they're both dead ends. And I, I, I can't help but think of that um, in terms of you know contemporary conversations on AI, on AI and the promises mm. and perils therein, yeah. I, I can really imagine Niebuhr saying like, "Listen, y'all, this is it's it's not your salvation. It's not the end of the world. It'll be neither. 
-hmm. it'll it'll frustrate both plans right (laughs) and and we're going to be stuck with the same old human moral dilemmas even with this and we're going to make the same mistakes on our way there like we're we're going to make the same mistakes that correspond to those errors on our way there it's not going to make everything evil but it's going to make things difficult and you know could be bad things but it's best if we now like orient ourselves around the reality that this is uh this isn't the boogeyman um but it's also not our savior well yeah and it's not going to emancipate us from the body or from being embodied creatures or anything like that right soul and body are one we're going to learn that in in ever more complex and difficult ways um in the age of ai and I, I love I love that you bring up the topic of AI because I mean Cliff and I are always going on about this in the <laughs> group chat, and it's quite interesting to me. I just watched last week, and I mentioned this last week, but the the religion for breakfast guys, they did a they did a thing on the new religion of the doomsdayers, the the AI doomsdayers, and what one of the things I really appreciate about um, just the whole conversation around it is that I think it actually highlights these things very clearly i just bought a book on ai alignment there's this desire to resolve these human issues that these perennial human issues but they are actually heightened they're like brought to the forefront like how do we actually control this thing if it's like us you know what i mean it actually makes us can be almost confronted by ourselves it's almost like a mirror back on us and on these issues that and 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 people are really pessimistic about actually whether or not they'll be resolved and i think that pessimism is actually just a realization of What's been going on the whole time? Well, no, I mean, that's exactly right. Because it's, it, you know, to uh, pull a quote from this final section, you know, he talks about the Christian view of the future. And he says, the Christian view of the future is complicated by the realization of the fact that the very freedom which brings the future into, into view has been the occasion for the corruption of the present in the heart of man. Mere development of what he now is cannot save man. For development will heighten heighten all the contradictions in which he stands. I love it. Yeah, that's it, man. That's yeah. actually where I can like my final chapter of my dissertation was because all these people are talking about technology as uh, we're going to hell in a handbasket, or they or it's the same binary of salvation or destruction. And uh, and yeah, this I think it was this quote exactly that just really brought me home that. If anything, this just kind of intensifies our anxieties yeah. um, and potentially intensifies our temptation to sin. Um, but it it's not that we're getting worse or getting better. Well, it's just and, and it's just aggravating it. And if you listen, I think there's a really there's like the 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 wise and people who've been in technology a long time, I've noticed, and who are have been around technology for like you know, like they're like in their 70s and they're talking about AI. Like the guy, I, I thought it was really interesting listening to the guy who just quit Google, who was considered like the founder of AI or or the... the um Like the godfather. The godfather of AI. And you notice actually his fear is very subtle, but it's still a big fear, but it's very subtle. And it's very much, I think on this point, he's actually more concerned, not about AI becoming sentient and doing its own thing or anything like that. He's worried about us being cruel to each other. He's, mm. he's worried about how this technology yeah. will actually be used. And I think that's actually think that's the fair. most realistic fear. It's not utopia. It's not the end of the world, but it's actually that, yeah, I mean, I, I, I could get on board with that. You know, I, mean, I don't have any reservations about saying, you know what, people probably will use this for very nefarious means towards each other. You know, it'll, it'll. Well, make I you... think that something that Niebuhr would caution us with is 
and I think that nuclear proliferation was uh, is 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 a nice period to look at when analyzing what's on the horizon. Niebuhr never said, "Oh, we won't destroy ourselves with nukes." That's always a fear. Like that's always a real fear. But it's kind of how we respond to that fear. Uh, do we treat this as something that is that is doom and gloom? It's we have no freedom here. We're just we're cascading into oblivion. Or do we is this anxiety we're feeling about this? Can this be used toward good and toward actually planning and coming up with policies and, uh, you know, throwing this to the think tank, see what they can make of it? You know, and I think A.I., we should say the same thing. Let's be honest. It could ruin a lot of things. It could do really bad things. The end of human civilization. I've yet to hear a good argument on the end of civilization. But let's say they do get all the drones and start killing all of us. Something like that. That's a possibility. I have no idea. But what's important is that we don't freak out. And we use this anxiety now in, in order to uh, to harden our resolve to, to find proximate solutions well it's almost like ai you know that we always come back to this but it's almost like ai the the advent of it right now is kind of like shocking people into like you need to have an uneasy conscience about pretty much about life Mm. and and people are like and you see people that are very smart they want to instead of living in the tension of being like you know there are a lot of possibilities here that could be very painful a lot of them are just like oh it's going to be a utopia or oh it's the end of the world and that sounds a lot like a lot of and you know strength. what's staring us in the eye is that same paradigm we started out on, that same paradox we started out on. Nukes, when they first came out, told us told a story of the wonders of humanity. We could now reconstruct the energy that powers the sun, but it all of a sudden also ushered in this very uneasy feeling that we could very easily kill ours. We've created something that's more powerful than us. For the first time, we can envision a world that is annihilated. It has that double-edged sword of progress, and yet, are we progressing? And uh, and this anxiety should tell us actually what we are and where we're going. We could do the same thing with well, AI. Look at what we've accomplished, but we should be a little anxious about this. Well, and I think what's interesting is you actually see, uh, so I guess we call it almost, and maybe it's unique to history to this last 100, 200 years, maybe it's not, but you could almost call it um, mathematical prophecy. You know what I mean? <laughs> Uh, you hear again, very intelligent people. They're like, it's just a matter of probabilities, right? You know I mean, eventually we're going to do this to ourselves. Eventually, you know, and it's almost like they speak with a certainty of a profit just based on the probabilities. Um, it's almost like a scientific method for the apocalypse. It's like, all right, well, given enough time, given enough space, we're going to kill ourselves. Jeremy wrote a really good article on this. What was it on AI or it was on social media? I forget what it was on. Uh, I'm actually blanking on which piece you're talking about. <laughs> Use the Tower of Babel as an illustration. Oh, the Tower of Babel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, that's right. That's right. And um, my own thinking on AI, it's been very shaped by a book called The Atlas of AI by Kate Crawford. And um, she just makes a very simple point. It's neither artificial nor intelligent. <laughs> it's an algorithm. We anthropomorphize it. Wow. And um, it's power and destructive potential they're both very real and we have to figure out how to live with that. It's like this very interesting anti-utopian take on AI. And, and I think she's right. Let's not anthropomorphize this. Let's not. You know, it's crazy. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. 
Um, let's let's not impute a soul to something that is an algorithm that is unimaginably powerful. There's no doubt, and you know can trick us into thinking that there's this intelligence on the other side. But you know we're also beings that can anthropomorphize stuffed animals, and you know yeah. like that impulse to the the hyper relationality. Here's maybe where we bring it back to Niebuhr: the hyper relationality that is part of being human. Um, we project that same thing onto an algorithm and we, we need to yeah. be aware of that tendency and try to steward it. Well, we do. Um, I'm guilty of this in a very specific way. So I have a former student who's going to do his PhD and he's been doing his interviews in um, neuroimaging and, uh, and using artificial intelligence to mirror human responses to political debates. It's crazy. The project he's working on is kind of scary, but uh and uh, he has to um, come up with a, th- a three minute long pitch. And it's supposed to be in layman, lay people terms. And uh, because and they, they want to um, everything in science has to be marketable in order to get grants. And I found myself there, like looking over his presentation and giving him suggestions and stuff. And I literally said, can you try anthropomorphizing these bots a little bit more? That might yeah. help, that might help the listener understand what's going on a little bit more. Well, you're right. It really will help them understand what's going on more. And it, it so it's that fine line of yeah. okay, I'm going to use this anthropomorphic language to help you understand it. I'm going to take away that anthropomorphic language that you don't impute powers to this thing. Yeah. Um, that aren't there. Right. It, you know, I think of the psalm that talks about idolatry, right? They have eyes, but do not see. They have mouths, but do not speak. It gets that kind of thing, the mm. impulse to anthropomorphize. Mm. Fascinating. We need That's to have I, you on, uh, on again. Again, this might be for your fifth, you know, embroidered smoke jacket. <laughs> but uh, but we, I would love to do a series on technology. Zach and I have been beating around the bush for like 20 episodes on going. Well, and I'll tell you what, through. my first published article was uh, called Poets and Prophets in the Machine Age, Reinhold Niebuhr on Technology. That was the first time we connected. I was a PhD yeah. student. I wrote you and you said that. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, crazy. Yeah. Uh, well, let me close this out. Before we started this, I asked Dr. John Weatherly, I said, weird question for you. Do you find it easier to believe in resurrection than an immortal soul? And I say, let's not, uh, let's say not from a biblical perspective, but from a Western scientific bias. And he just wrote back to me and he basically nails this, this chapter and I have to read it. It's a summary, basically set on a criterion adjacent to Western science, the power to explain human experience and human longing. The story of resurrection is far more powerful than an account of an immortal soul. With my very sketchy grasp of the history of philosophy, I'll say Plato understood the need for more, but lacked the means to imagine a God who raises the dead and remakes the world. Why is the account of the resurrection more powerful? It is the whole person, not just the reduced essence. It is by nature collective, not just individual. This is freaky. And it is part of the remaking of the entire world, not escape into another world. Did he just summarize this chapter? I think he did. He even had like the, man, that's freaky. I have to ask him if that's, if he was channeling this when he said that. I don't think he's read this. So that's weird. Anyway. uh, Well, Jeremy, thank you so much for being on with us. Uh, It's always a pleasure. 
It was same here. Always enjoy this. Now, before we close, we'd be remiss if we didn't give a, a brief shout out to Niebuhr's old arch nemesis, because this episode drops on his birthday. Hmm. So happy birthday, Carl Bart. We hope you trip on something in the afterlife. I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> we love you, buddy. I love Bart so, so much. Just having a bit of fun. We do need to find like a good Bart podcast and have a little rivalry with them sometime. Yeah. Um, and uh, and good discussions with them. Well, that about does it for this week's episode of the Love Thy Neighbor podcast. I want to thank again our three-timer guest, Dr. Jeremy Sabella. And I want to thank you, the listener, for tuning in. Remember to like or subscribe, rate us, and write us a good review. Thanks again. Take care, everybody. And stay safe out there.